Hello, I'm Rupert Sheldrake. I'm here with Mark Vernon, and we're doing another in our series of dialogues as podcasts. Um, we talk together about things that we're both interested in. We have no script. We don't know the way the conversation's going to go. And we hope that by listening to these conversations, other people may be inspired to discuss these things with their friends. And it's really trying to get across the idea of conversations and, and um, discovery through interaction and dialogue, um, which we both greatly enjoy. Yeah, well, we, hi there. Hi. Hi, Mark. Yeah. So, um, right, well, today I, I wanted to talk, Mark, about psychedelics and also cannabis, mind-altering drugs, because um, this is one of the themes I discuss in my new book, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. Um, and it's really uh, an approach to psychedelics that can have a spiritual dimension. And they're usually treated as drugs of abuse or illegal substances or, at best, recreational. And yet I think that they can have a, a genuinely spiritual dimension. Um, cannabis, for example, in India is a, a holy plant consecrated to the god Shiva. A lot of these sadhus, those orange-robed holy men, uh, have chillums, little clay pipes that they smoke cannabis in as part of their devotional practice. In a sense, they're a bit like hippies. Uh, during When I first travelled in India in 1968 and came across sadhus, it was a time when there were a lot of hippies in India too, and they wore flowing robes, a lot of them, and had long hair and smoked cannabis, some of them out of chillums. And I asked a holy man that I met in Benares, you know, do you think there's a lot of difference between you and hippies and and he said no no he said very similar they do that we do this they, they, you know he he didn't actually say no they're not the real thing we're the real thing um he he didn't make a big deal out of it um but it is a kind of devotional practice and the very first time i took cannabis was in india i was staying in a remote village in the himalayas with a friend who was an anthropologist who knew the people and spoke the local language and we were walking along a river, a mountain river, and there was a cave by the river, and an orange-robed figure beckoned us in. I'd only been in India three or four days, and invited us to smoke his chillum and explained to me what to do, and I wasn't quite sure what it was, and um, smoked this, and had this astonishing feeling of expansion of mind. Of um, When I stepped out of the cave, the mountains just seemed incredibly beautiful, the whole place seemed filled with the presence of God. It was an extraordinary experience of connection, divinity, presence. I mean, for me, this was undoubtedly a spiritual opening. And, of course, many people take cannabis just at parties to listen to music or for just hanging out, and it's a bit like drinking beer in pubs in that sense. So it's not always a, a spiritual thing. It can cause psychosis in people who are unbalanced. And other psychedelics can also um, you know, be taken in ways that are fairly frivolous. But in many traditional cultures, like ayahuasca in the Amazon, iboga in West Africa, mushrooms in Mexico, they've been taken as part of uh, psychedelic uh, shamanic practice in, for initiations, for healings. And uh, I do think for many people today, especially young people, um, psychedelics and cannabis can provide a portal 
into another realm of consciousness or experience, uh, which is indeed a kind of spiritual opening. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, my sort of broad thesis is um, the reason why psychedelics um, were of interest in the 60s, but are now, of course, becoming a great interest too, once more. I mean, we're in a, the middle of another revival of, of mm. interest in psychedelics um, with research as well as experimentation. Um, is that we need persuading that there is a kind of whole other world out there um, that we can actually engage with. And psychedelics give you a kind of short, shot sort of boost um, yes. into that um, other world, which is actually right here already. Um, and in a way, makes it undeniable. It's very striking that um, a lot of the reports that people make after a psychedelic experience are ones which they're not just, as it were, like trying another drug which might alter um, your mental state. Um, for example, you know, might help you to concentrate more or, um, you know, might make you feel less depressed. They have this lasting quality because it's as if you have become in touch or aware of another reality um, that, that lasts as well. Mm. Um, so you don't have to, as it were, just keep taking the drug. Um, the drug opens up your mind and then you can work out how to keep engaging with that reality throughout normal life. Well, I think so, yes. I mean, my own experience was, of I, my own first time I took LSD was in, I think, 1971. And for me, it was a revelation exactly of a realms of consciousness no one had ever told me about, not part of my scientific education um, or part of my uh, exposure to Christianity growing up from my family and from school. Uh, hadn't prepared me for anything like that. Um, it showed there was something going on. The mind was vastly greater than I'd been told or had experienced before. And for me, it didn't mean that I went on taking I didn't take LSD again for years. Uh, I did start doing meditation because I wanted to find another way of exploring you know, consciousness from within. Um, so I think for many people, they, they act as a kind of rite of passage into another dimension of experience. And the actual content of um, what's so interesting, I think, about psychedelic experiences is that they, uh, they don't just seem to be one's own mind. Uh, as my friend Terence McKenna said, you know, in a psychedelic experience, it's clear that what one's experiencing is made of mind, but it's not made of my mind. You know, there's a sense in which one's contacting other realms of mind and and this is I think where it overlaps with one of your interests namely dreams because dreams are ways in which things manifest in our minds that we certainly don't plan and can't predict um, and as Jung and others have pointed out you know the, the kind of content that we get in our dreams could come from a more general mind at least the collective unconscious and there may be autonomous beings that can exist in dreams that are not just products of your mind or my mind or even a collective mind. No, I completely agree. I think that dreams for me are the almost daily way that I have an ecstatic experience. If ecstatic means stepping out of yourself mm. um, and, as it were, being at the edges of your own mind and um, open to the influence or the presence of other minds. Mm. And if you get to know your dreams a bit um, you quite quickly become aware that there are different 
um, things going on in dreams. Sometimes I think a dream very much is caught up in your own imagination. It's as if you're trying to work out or settle something perhaps that happened from the previous day. But there's also dreams that have a much more expansive quality where you realise that there um, are figures that you encounter in the dreams um, that you can relate to um, and that maybe are even filtered somehow through your own experience but nonetheless have um, a presence and a being, have intention, almost a way of life um, that um, is different from your own. Mm. Um, and you almost meet, um, it can feel as a stranger or even um, something frightening or maybe as a friend. Um, and the dream is about learning to relate to that. Mm. And either in the dream itself or when you recall the dream and hold it in your mind's eye, um, to let those entities keep on with their own way of life and, and move with them, as it were, through a kind of imaginative exercise. Jung called it the active imagination. Um, sometimes you can do it also in hypnagogic states, you know, where mm. you're on the brink of, of sleep. Um, this is often quite a way of doing it, actually, that um, if you wake up in the middle of the night and as you're drifting through the small hours, realise that you're half awake and half asleep and that all that was in your mind is not just waking awareness, but a different kind of awareness... Um, that's often quite a good way of experimenting with the different uh, things that, that come through um, your mind then. You can sort of um, semi-consciously become aware of them and say, I'm going to look at that, I'm going to approach this person, or what happens when I um, just stand with this image. Um, these are all kind of ecstatic experiences, which I think must bleed into um, the broader, um, hmm. or, or the particular experience that psychedelics open up as well. Well, I think they do, and I think they're actually very very relevant because one of the things that um, preoccupies a lot of people who take psychedelics is entities encountering beings what is the nature of these beings I was at a symposium at um, a place called Tiring of a, a, an invited weekend of uh, people discussing the nature of entities in psychedelic experiences particularly um, DMT, dimethyltryptamine and ayahuasca experiences where uh, many people encounter these beings or entities and uh, what is the nature of these entities and we had a full spectrum of people there, one or two people there were interested in psychedelics but were materialists and thought that consciousness is nothing but the brain um, <coughs> so they had to try and explain them as things produced inside the brain these images um, other people were open to the idea that there could be actual autonomous entities out there, spirits ancestors uh, you know and, and all sorts of d discarnate beings um, angels um, and that we can encounter those in, in um, psychedelic experiences or in dreams and I got interested myself in the way in which there could be collectively accepted images, like, for example, Ganesh in the Hindu pantheon. Ganesh, the elephant-headed god, clearly wasn't a historical figure. I mean, there are stories and myths about Ganesh, but there, there couldn't have been a human with an elephant head like that wandering around at a particular historical time. This is clearly some kind of archetypal figure. And Hindus see pictures of Ganesh everywhere, statues in temples, there are calendars with Ganesh on them and images of Ganesh. Uh, it's part of the collective, cultural, conscious collective life. Now a lot of Hindus see Ganesh in their dreams 
and they can relate to Ganesh and pray to Ganesh. There are even online forums where people discuss Ganesh dreams with each other. So Ganesh is clearly an entity that has a life of his own in dreams, yet is not someone who actually existed in the past, but could be a channel for a divine energy or form of consciousness. Um, so it's these when we get to that kind of realm, we're in an area where it's not just made up, it's not just in my imagination, but it takes on a life of its own. Yeah, and I think that some of the greatest works of literature, say in the West, um, which is you know the tradition that I know the best, um, are about encountering these spiritual entities. So in Plato, for example, or in Dante. And what interests me about them is not just a kind of verification of um, the reality of these spiritual entities, but how they work them, what they might have um, to tell us about doing so. So, for example, in Plato, you broadly can read about two kinds of spiritual entity that he encounters. One are people, even ancestors. Um, so, for example, at the end of the Republic, um, he describes in what we would now call a near-death experience. Um, and um, the thing that you learn by reading about this near-death experience is that the, the quality of your encountering is very much related to the character of your person. So there's a kind of lesson that Plato draws from this, that by working on your virtues now, um, by, which is, by which he just meant your kind of habits, your characteristics, um, how you tend to approach people and life, by thinking about that, um, you can then um, shape um, and broaden um, your encounters with people and ancestors that might go on in these ecstatic experiences. Um, so virtues become very important for how we not just get on in life morally, but also in terms of the quality of our spiritual experience. Um, but then there's another level of um, a spiritual encounter which takes place, which is more with what is often now called um, the forms um, I think these are um, Plato's spiritual, intellig spiritual intelligences, and he thought of them as living qualities, um, a bit like um, the wind, um, you know, that can kind of fill the forest. So too, these were spiritual qualities that um, give form and shape um, to the world around us. Um, at the highest level, what he called the good, the beautiful, and the true. Um, when Plato comes into the Christian tradition, um, they're taken up as angels in figures like Dionysius, um, Pseudo Dionysius. Um, and again, um, working on your approach, um, your own personal qualities, and becoming open um, to uh, the resonance of these spiritual intelligences, you know, like uh, their good qualities, like their true qualities, like their beautiful qualities, um, and means that the human mind. Um, can become open to them uh, more and more subtly as well. And so I really like that because it's about cultivating your own mind um, in order to approach these wider minds. Um, and not just as it were having you know, your mind blasted um, in a moment of ecstasy um, mm. to, you know, to even appreciate that, that they're there. Um, it's that integration, I think, which you might say the great teachers of inspiration, um, which of course means to be breathed into by these um, spiritual intelligences. Um, that, that's what they were really interested in, is how it, uh, it, it grows our own mind, it grows our own consciousness, as well as making us aware of minds and consciousnesses elsewhere. Very interesting, Mark. Uh, and I think in, in the case of Plato, it may not be completely unconnected with psychedelics either, because 
the Eleusinian mysteries in ancient Greece, which were an important mystery cult. It was a visionary cult. Um, you know, they were in a cave. They had these rites of passage, being in the darkness of the cave, drinking a brew which helped induce visions. I mean, no one knows what was in it, but it sounds very like a psychedelic brew. Did it contain ergot? Did it con- which is related to LSD? Well, did it, what did it contain? No one knows. I mean, there's lots of speculation, but it seems fairly clear that they had, uh, by being in the darkness in the cave, taking a visionary brew, um, underwent a, a kind of initiatory thing, that, and finally emerged out into the light. Now, it's interesting, Plato uses the metaphor of the cave, seeing shadows in the cave, and I don't know whether it's generally considered by scholars that he was an initiate into the Eleusinian mysteries, but I don't know, but a lot of people were. Yeah, I mean, it. it was very common, so it's quite likely. Um, I mean, he, it's Jay's generally considered that he was um, initiated into other mysteries, perhaps explicitly um, Egyptian mysteries. It's thought pretty likely that when Socrates died... Um, Plato went on a sort of journey himself around the Mediterranean, um, visited Egypt, um, underwent the mysteries there, but felt they needed a kind of revival. Um, in the Timaeus, he talks about um, someone going to Egypt and finding everything a bit ossified and dead, mm. um, and that he wondered whether the rather um, youthful spirit of Greek culture um, could, um, could investigate these old mysteries and remake them. And I actually think that uh, Plato's philosophy... Um, after Socrates' death, that's, uh, it was a key inspiration for him. Uh, he realised that um, these old mysteries need revivifying for the sort of new consciousness of the times, which has, say, a different quality from you know Egyptian culture, which already in Plato's time was 2,000 years old. Um, yeah, so figures like shamans... I mean, Socrates is even called a wizard, quite explicitly, say, in the symposium, um, and Socrates himself goes and visits the priestess Diotima, um, and um, it's talked about in terms of erotic energy, um, which again didn't just mean sexual energy at the time. Um, it meant generally the sort of vitality or passion of life. Mm. Um, so whilst there's not actual records of Plato being initiated, um, it's you know on almost every page of Plato's dialogues um, this kind of sense of of opening up to life through these mystery traditions. So it's certainly there, I'd say. Very interesting that he thought they needed a revival, and it's, I mean, highly relevant today, isn't it? Because there's a sense in which um, psychedelics, by opening up to people the existence of this realm, um, do open up the possibility of a revival of this whole way of approaching things. Uh, People aren't going to get this through academic study, which is all about books and writing things down and doing exams, uh, uh, or scholarship, which is finding out what other scholars said and where they went wrong and all that kind of thing. It's going to come from something much more visionary. And psychedelics are the main impetus, I think, to visionary experience in the modern world. And so if the taking of these things could be related, as it was in the Eleusinian Mysteries, to a process of opening the mind uh, to another realm, and then that other realm being something to informs and, 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 and not just something weird that happens out there as depicted in 1960s psychedelic graphics um, but something that's actually telling something about the deep nature of reality and that they can open this door and that people could take them as part of a kind of spiritual discipline that would be an amazingly uh, exciting new adventure. Yeah, I mean one of the 
the best ecstatic experiences, if you like, that I had was actually reading Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, I read it with a group of people and we had someone who guided us through it, um, who helped us unpick a lot of the details as much as the broader themes. And we did it over a period of several weeks. Um, And it was like going on a slow um, but very distinct um, ecstatic journey. There was a descent, of course, and then an ascent. Um, And what was great about it wasn't just the experience itself, but was what I felt I learned about shaping these experiences so they can really inform your life. Um, So, for example, you know, Dante embarks on his um, journey at a particular moment in his life. You know, Mm. famously, it begins, he was in the midst of life and found himself in a dark wood. And I think linking your ecstatic experience with where you are, either in life or in terms of your personal development, in terms of your consciousness, mirroring, matching experience with consciousness at a particular time is really important. You know, you don't just, as it were, immediately go for, you know, plunge into the deep end, uh, because, you know, you may have an amazing experience, but you're then going to really struggle, I think, to integrate it back into your life. Mm. So, um mirroring matching experience and where you are in life i think is really important um dante finds a guide of course um virgil and again having someone who can take you um steadily through the journey i think is really important it generally means you know someone who's been there before um i work as a psychotherapist and i think a lot of what psychotherapy about is first of all going on your own journey in your training and in your own therapy um in order that you can then accompany someone on theirs um, it's not that their journey will be exactly the same, but there are kind of principles that you learn when you've been on your own journey um, that then can be applied. Um, so, for example, uh, one that comes through very clearly in Dante um, is how um, those who can go through the journey um, down into hell, up through purgatory and then into paradise are those who can stay with the present moment. And people that get stuck in hell are either fixed on the past or obsessed with the future, and can't actually attend to the present. Oh, really? And, th- and this really interests me, because it seems that a lot of um, shamanic wisdom, which is coming now out um, through people that talk about psychedelics, is staying with the moment, um, that when an entity approaches you, as it were, pay attention to the entity, um, sort of almost put to one side um, your old fears or your own hopes and expectations, but stay with the present moment. Um, it's, it's a similar thing that happens in dreams as well. Um, so in a text like Dante, um, I thought I learned a huge amount actually about how to go on these ecstatic journeys, as well as Dante himself taking us, you know, on on the journey. That's fascinating, Mark. Do you think Dante himself had uh, ecstatic journeys? I mean, he he couldn't have just sort of made this stuff up without some kind of imaginative experience. Oh no, I, I mean for sure. I, I mean, he says very clearly, um, particularly when he gets into paradise. Um, he, he asks God um, to give him the words that can express the experience that he's undergone. Mm. Um, and again, that's a really important dynamic in the ecstatic experience because it's about refining your perception, mm. particularly when he, when he gets into paradise and he's being followed by Beatrice, um, his beloved at that point. Um, they have to pause so that Dante's sight can tolerate the light that he sees all around him. Mm. Um, it's a constant process of kind of growing in order to be able to embrace um, what's round and about. Um, so both in his writing experience, you know, as it were, at his desk, um, but also recalling the experience that he, I think, undoubtedly had. Um, I mean, you know, someone cannot write a work of literature um, that we're still reading the best part of 
you know, 800 years later and still finding it alive and vital to us, mm. unless he was in touch with um, the living vitality um, that delivered the experience in the first place. It seems just completely sensible to me um, to, to say what he's doing um, is trying to write down his own ecstatic experience in order that not just we can learn about them ourselves, but can be taken on a similar journey by engaging with it. That That's just the kind of text it is. Gosh. Well, I'm looking forward to somebody starting a new centre where one can go in a sort of retreat in a beautiful place in the countryside, um, be guided through Dante, for example, uh, facilitated for someone like me who's not very, hasn't, I haven't got a very visual imagination, uh, psychedelics would definitely help. Some kind of guided journeys um, would be an amazing way forward. I mean, that's not what's happening today. I mean, most people who take psychedelics are taking them in uncontrolled, sort of unguided circumstances, which are often chaotic and unsuitable with very little, very limited terms of reference. I mean, there are guided ones, of course, like the ayahuasca um, journeys in Peru or in the Santo Daime Church with the Christian form of psychedelic, uh, psychedelic Christianity and this fascinating church that's come out of Brazil where they take it as a sacrament um, and actually invoke the guidance of um, the Blessed Virgin Mary and of Jesus and of the angels. Um, so there are some things going on like that, but um, a rediscovery of Plato and Dante of our own Western visionary literature uh, would be an amazing thing to do. Yeah, I mean, well, one of the things which is coming out very clearly from the scientific research is that setting really matters. It absolutely um, fundamentally shapes partly and makes safe the experience, but also then what this experience can offer you. And my sense of that is because when you enter these worlds, you're very much in a reflexive space. Um, it's partly about what you can tolerate, what you can see, what you're open to. Um, but it's also you're a co-worker with these experiences, I think, mm. and that they have to be ignited by your own imagination mm. um, as well as just by what, as it were, is blasted at you. Um, you know, poetry, there's no mystery here, actually. Poetry is very much like that. Um, to read a poem in the right way opens up the poem to you. Mm. And similarly, you know, to take the drug in the right way um, opens up the experience uh, to you as well. Mm. Um, so with luck, I think we'll move beyond just needing to be convinced that these worlds exist, you know, by popping the pill and, you know, tripping all weekend, as it mm. were. Um, uh, and can and they, they can be incorporated, along with other, other things like uh, reading, um, like dreams, um, to, so this can become part and parcel of our everyday experience, um, a wider consciousness, not just something exceptional. Yeah, I agree. That's not going to happen in universities as we currently know them, though, is it? It's going to happen in other settings. Um, actually, it'd be a wonderful way to reframe, uh, you know, staying on a retreat in a, in a monastery, a kind of monastic retreat type thing, which would be a journey of discovery of, of this kind into which actually could also be combined with liturgy and holy places. I mean, this would be uh, amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said for that because um, whilst, you know, psychedelics are very fascinating, um, they do affect people um, in, uh, you know, unfortunate ways. Um, well, actually, all mental health drugs do that. Um, you know, someone who works in mental health, that, that's the way they work. 
Um, it's very hard to control all the variables. Um, so embedding it thoroughly in a wider context um, that um, is understood, um, that can just hold the person concerned, I'm sure that's it's going to be absolutely crucial to do that. Yes. Well, it's perhaps just beginning now, but I mean, it is. I, I do get the feeling we're on the threshold of a whole new phase of evolution, of spiritual evolution, and this is, I think, a very important ingredient in it. Yeah, it's, it's both a rediscovery and, I think, a next step. Mm. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Cheers, thank you.